typically shambolic start there to uh, Football Unfocused. Uh, hello, welcome, welcome back. Once again, we uh, got ourselves into a um, into a, a run of doing regular, consistent episodes and then have now just inexplicably had the best part of a month off. Uh, so I apologise. There are people out there who, without this podcast, don't have any meaning in their lives. You know, that days are bereft. They're, top, they're constantly looking down at the app of their podcast supplier of choice, refreshing, refreshing, refreshing to no avail. They could have driven themselves absolutely insane. I don't know what the rate of, uh, I was going to say self-harm and uh, suicide, that's probably a bit dark, but there's, there's going to have been some really unpleasant and self-destructive thoughts going through the minds of millions of people around the world as they wait for the, this episode to drop. And for the delay, I could only apologise. And in terms of reasons, uh, there are none. Easter maybe a bit, but that was it. Matt, Matt, you had something on last week, didn't you? The, oh, by, by the way, I'm Mark. Matt's about to speak. Yeah, hi. Yeah, well, we met up last Thursday. So, and I, was, I actually two weeks my, ago, actually. To, oh, right. Sorry, I brought last my week. You were on a corporate away day or something, weren't you? Oh, yeah, possibly. And um, and you sort of you, dogging in a car park in Salisbury or something. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, you, you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah, suppose yeah. you do it with that regularity. You probably don't remember. I know. So well, they all blur into blurs one. Into one. <laughs> yeah. Once you've seen uh, one steamed up back window, you've seen them all. <laughs> yeah. Who was it? Colin. Uh, St- Colin. Stan. What was his name? Stan. No, I don't know what you're talking about. The, the one who went out with Eureka Johnson. Eureka Johnson, incredible. Eureka Johnson. Uh, yeah. Col- uh, Col- Colin. Do you mean John Leslie? No, the footballer. Stan Collymock. Colin Standard. Incredible. Incredible. Colin Standard. Colin Standard. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. This podcast um, is produced by two football experts. Uh, two people are fanatical about the game and remember all the historical figures from. Uh, Colin the Standen <laughs> to uh, Ballon Nera and uh, uh, Gian Light, uh, all the 90s stars. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, fucking hell, Matt. Um, oh, yeah, I brought, God. I brought my laptop down, actually, the, that week, and uh, but we didn't get to do it. I was thinking we could do it in person, but we didn't yeah. get on to it. We no. were busy getting on it. No, you were too. Um, you were too busy looking after your high maintenance wolf dog, oh, uh, yeah. and 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 then and then yeah, because we're such you know uh, uh, purveyors of the lager, <laughs> we just wanted to focus on just knocking back the jars because that's the kind of guys we are. That's how we roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But fortunately, Matthew, as a f- football fanatic, uh, there's been so much to talk about. There's so much content. Just you know, spinning around uh, my mind like trainers in a washing machine, um, as Alan Partridge would say, uh, four times in autobiography, number one, I think, and then recently in uh, superbly in the second series of Alan Partridge from the Oast House, um, uh, that uh, we have we have such an abundance of things to talk about that I'd imagine that we're going to be able to uh, knock out at least an episode a week for at least another 100 million years um, which, which, is, which is which is fantastic um but before we do as maybe when it comes to the football bit 
your participation might be, shall we say, a little bit compromised by the <laughs> fact that you think that uh, there was a player in the 90s who went out with, uh, I think it was, what did you call that? Eureka Johnson, um, <laughs> called Colin Standen. Um, so, you know, I don't want to sort of play down expectations here, but maybe on the football part, you're, you might be a little bit, um, uh, shall we say, yes, yeah, sketchy with the details. Um, we're going to ask you some questions that you can't fail to know the answer to because they are specifically and directly about you, your persona, your habits, uh, your likes and dislikes. Matthew, question, question one, Matthew. At the moment, like me, I'm sure you're um, uh, engaged on an almost 24-hour basis on the uh, World Snooker Championships that started uh, on Saturday. It's a great, uh, one of the best fortnights of the uh, of the year. What better way to spend just as often the weather's on the turn and things are a bit more optimistic and the days are longer than watching hour upon hour of uh, sort of pasty men in a, <laughs> a, in a sort of uh, a dimly lit theatre in Sheffield uh, playing a, a sort of a drawing room game from the 19th century. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, but I'm just interested, Matthew, on snooker, uh, your, your uh, view of snooker, not, not whether or not you like it. I'm just saying, given the choice, would you rather share a night of passion uh, including full intercourse with Steve Davis or Stephen Hendry? Uh, probably Stephen Hendry. Mm. I, th- I think he's, better, he's a bit better looking, maybe. Right. <laughs> is it his... Would you say? Well, what is it and also that you both... Hendry's going to bring to the uh, the evening of passion that Davis wouldn't be able to? Well, is it just because Davis... aesthetics? Yeah, but Davis is from Romford as well, isn't he? He's from yeah, from the area. Yeah, he's from right, and so yeah, so opposites attract, I think, because Henry's right. Scottish. So yeah, very good. So, fly. Well, we should do a podcast about snooker. Your knowledge oh, about your knowledge about two, snooker is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I impressed did, I did, you know who both of them are. So, what do you think yeah. Henry would bring to your romantic evening then? I think that has would... to have involved full intercourse. <laughs> well, he's. I remember watching a clip of him. He he got he got into working out quite a bit. Like not not you know sort of getting really buff, but he was into his fitness, I think, and that sort of helped him with his snooker. Mm. But I can imagine that helps. Sorry, I'm just, helps in other just, ways. Just have to ask, what was the nature of this video? Uh, it was in the You'd build up to. Yeah, it was in the <laughs> it was in the build up to one of the big tournaments. I assume. Mm. Well, he hasn't played for quite a while, so uh, yeah, yeah, mm, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So immediately, your ears pricked up when I gave you the option of a night of passion with Stephen Henry, um, and it seems that you've made that decision based on this. This video has clearly had a quite a big impact on you. Yeah, well, and and he's Do you rewatch looking. it regularly. So I, I'll have to find it. I'll Is it, it the you. relentlessness of his break building that you feel that he'd he'd bring to a you know a night of passion with you? Well, that Nick, the, are they the skills you're looking for? Yeah, ne- neither of them were that exciting. Exciting a player were they? Davis how you define excitement? Well, they were both yeah. quite defensive. I mean, Davis was notoriously defensive, wasn't he? I, th- I, I don't know where I'd go as far as saying defensive. He was. Um, he would just always play safety shots. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's uh, Peter Ebden really ticks that box. He's probably oh, really? the most outrageously defensive and slow player <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. Uh, yeah, Mark Selby, current, I think, four times world champion and currently playing 
on the telly over my shoulder there. He's I don't find him particularly great to watch. He's just a you know, just a bit of a dull, relentless player. The anti Ronnie O'Sullivan. Yeah, him. yeah, yeah. Every time those two are up against each other, I really do see it as a sort of good versus evil encounter. Even though Ronnie O'Sullivan is. I mean, I, I absolutely worship the ground Ronnie O'Sullivan walks on, but he's probably, you know, quite challenging company just because he's, uh, you know, he's, he, shall we say, he's he's up and down mood wise, isn't he? Whereas Mark Selby yeah. is probably quite a nice guy to have a night out with. But when it comes to snooker, I find him a diff, he's a difficult watch. Yeah. And, and Ronnie O'Sullivan, he's sort of, just feels like what of late he's the way he talks about snooker just feels like he should he thinks he should be earning lots lots and lots of more money yeah than he does and, well, i don't think and, that's even of late he's talked negatively about his own sport pretty much throughout his entire <laughs> career really you ask him you know even when he's played really well he'll sort of come off oh you were great today you must have felt great out there his t- standard response will be, no, not really. You know, I'm not feeling it at the moment. I'm not feeling great. I'm, I'm uninspired. I don't like these venues they keep sending me to. I don't yeah. like the way they're looking after us. They're not paying us enough. The standard of play is not good. The players aren't as good as they used to be. <laughs> they're not coming through anymore. And I just, you know, wonder. But I'm all right because as long as I can sort of go out running and clear my head, then I'll I'll keep going. Um, yeah, but yeah. I do wonder why I turn up. Like that's that's a that's a classic sort of Ronnie answer. And you know, and then <laughs> Hazel Irving just sort of sits there in the uh, in the studio and sort of goes, "Okay, so next up, it's uh, you know, <laughs> Anthony McGill against uh, uh, um, I don't know, fucking." Mark, I was going to say Mark Selby. I've literally just been talking about him. Who's the, who's the large fellow? The other one. The, uh, the other one. Yeah, the, the, one of the one of the other lads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dominic Brazil. Oh, I, yeah. I think that's a boxer. Oh dear. <laughs> Bloody hell. Yeah. Alex Higgins. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, I was thinking about the guy. You know, what? sometimes you just get a complete mental blank when you, uh, even though it's someone you know really well, as in know of really well, um, and but then when you're immediately faced with... Um, uh, Sean Murphy is who I was thinking of. Yeah. Oh, very yeah. good. Thank World goodness. champion from, <laughs> I think, 2005. Okay, question number two, Matthew. Uh when was the last time you placed a bet of any sort? Mm, I can't. I can't uh, which would buying a lottery ticket? Would that be? I suppose so. Yeah, so maybe. Maybe bet? that. I suppose it is a bet because you put. Yeah. So, that, yeah. What about a or, bet on on an actual? No. You know, on a sport. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't think I. A decade what, you don't ago? think you've ever done it? Oh, you have done oh, it. Maybe on the. On what would it have been on? Yeah, horses, horses probably. Yeah, so Awful, really. I'm just going to write that down so you support. No, I don't. I don't. No, I'm just. I'm just writing that down because that is a, a fact. Uh, you financially <laughs> contributed. Was it the Grand National? I, uh, I think I went to Ascot. Or so I can't remember. I can't remember. Hmm. Final question. Have you ever participated in any sort of protest? Be that a dirty protest or a, a, <laughs> an involuntary a noble, dirty protest. Yeah, 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 voluntary <laughs> or involuntary. Yes. Uh no, it's awful really. I was I was really close to joining uh the Brexit protest. Um Pro, I'm assuming. 
Yeah, pro Brexit. Yeah, pro and, Brexit. Um, We're all pro Brexit. Yeah, and uh, I just was worried it was going to get too busy, and I didn't like the idea of, of lots of people, lots of people in a busy area. Yeah. So you'd like to, <laughs> by that definition, you'd like to join a, an unsuccessful, poorly attended protest. <laughs> that, that would be my dream. Yeah, your dream my protest. Dream cause Almost that protest. no one would even know that it is a <laughs> that protest. It happened. Yeah, yeah. You could start a one-man protest. Just find something that engages you. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, but nobody. I mean, else. surely, like most people who are sort of pro Brexit and love Britain, you're in favour of um, scrapping the metric system and returning to pounds and ounces. So yeah, maybe you could, that could be stand outside, um, stand outside uh, Ten Downing Street with uh, half a dozen eggs uh with the weight on the box uh sort of crossed out and uh written over in in sort of pounds or whatever yeah. um yeah maybe you know that's just an idea i'm just you know i know just... what well, i'd write it on the box or on the eggs and then throw the eggs well don't does it do does a packet of eggs have the weight on the on the box most things I'm have vegan. the weight but they probably don't do they because it can't be you can't be that exact um, with with say half a dozen eggs, <laughs> just anything. <laughs> say uh, say like a, a you know, five hundred grams of flour. Jeez. Cross out the yeah. five hundred grams. You know what could be more British than uh, you know some self raising flour? Uh, yeah, <laughs> or, or cheese. Yeah, nothing says Britain like cheese, does it? No other country <laughs> I don't think has ever worked out how to make cheese, have they? <laughs> Um, I've never seen it anywhere else. I don't know about you. So yeah, no, yeah. No. Block of cheese with no flavour, uh, mild, mild cheddar. Cross out the uh, the grammage and just write write something Dead in pounds, pounds on the side and, <laughs> and just stand relentlessly staring uh, along at, at the security people and the and the armed police on the end of Downing Street that, on your yeah. own. Yeah, would you that like would, that? That'd be my dream protest. That's your dream. Okay. Yeah. Good. Have you ever been to a protest? Just out of interest. Uh, questions are for uh, you, Matthew. Not for oh, me. I'd be interested. Yeah, go on. Anyway. Well, ask me. Ask me a question then next time. But that that fulfills the quota of questions that are not related <laughs> to football for this week's okay. episode. And uh, we're now going to talk about football because we're con- contractually obliged to talk about football for a little bit. <laughs> so this happens to be, I think, possibly the best Premier League season I can ever remember. Despite the fact that the team that I'm primarily interested in um, have had a really shit time of it, but just objectively and forgetting everything else, it is it's I can't really recall a season in which um, with eight or nine games, sort of seven or eight games to go, there are still about seven teams, eight teams even, uh, with a genuine prospects of getting relegated that no one's just fallen off a cliff and last few years one or two teams have pretty much been down by now and it's just two or three trying not to be the last one to fall through the the trap door champions league places are usually pretty settled certainly three of the four would be but you know again up till this point third and fourth place are still still very much up for grabs Europe, the fight for European uh, places, the non-Champions League spots is in full force with some unlikely um, sort of candidates in there. And the title race is, is absolutely captivating. That, that, I, sp- I suppose that part isn't that unusual because, 
it looked for a while like it might have been a three-horse race, but I think uh, that lot from Old Trafford will be maybe getting a little bit excited and and, uh, and optimistic there because you know they were never going to get anywhere near it, were they? Um, uh, you can't win the league and lose seven nil away to your biggest rivals in the same season. Just not going to happen. Um, uh, but I suppose the the sort of the the, the two-horse title race is pretty consistent with the way it has been for most of the last five years. Just Liverpool have dropped out and Arsenal have very capably taken their place. And it just means, I just think it just makes for a potentially captivating uh, sort of six weeks or so still to go. Because obviously because of the World Cup, the season goes on right until the end of uh, May now. And I think the Champions League final is sort of at the end of that first week in, in June. So it's a... Um, yeah, it's just it's it's interesting times. Very interesting <laughs> times. Um, do you have an opinion, Matthew, on the uh, Premier League title? I know you obviously are following it incredibly closely. Not not really, um, but yeah, I mean, it is interesting how Haaland is is just like a rock star footballer at the moment. I mean, in what respects is he? Start, just, is he taking the, up an instrument? <laughs> the, just his look and his, mm. yeah, I guess his look mainly. His <laughs> and look, he scores lots yeah. of goals. Yeah, he good. scores lots of goals and he kind of looks looks a bit like. He, I mean, he's he's an unusual looking man, though, isn't he? I think that's the 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 Nordic. No, I, I think I've never seen anyone who looks quite like him. He's bizarre. have you seen? There were some apparently there were some details released of his diet. Um, uh, during the week or week or so ago. I don't know what it is as a result of a magazine article. He's fascinating because um, you kind of, I think you kind of have this expectation these days that so many of the players are, um, it was quite a surprising um, high number of them are vegan these days as well. And obviously every single molecule that goes into their body is sort of measured. But he really, like uh, there was, I think on some days he, eats up to 6,000 calories a day, which is what you'd kind of expect from a sort of a world's strongest man yeah. contestant rather than a top-rate um, sort of world-class uh, Champions League and Premier League striker. And he eats a lot of, um, like, heart and kidney um, of various animals. So, you know, but whatever he's eating, it's I mean, it clearly fucking works, doesn't yeah, it? Because he's yeah. an absolute freak of nature and monster of a man. Um, I... I mean, that wasn't really what I was getting at when I was, <laughs> I was asking about the title race, Erling Haaland's, Haaland's weird look um, or Nordic look, whatever you were, you know, thinking. Uh, I think you're still caught up with your Stephen Hendry. Yeah, I know, I'm just thinking uh, of Yeah, it's just Hendry. <laughs> who, who do I want to sleep with? Hendry in a, in a lay-by. Um, uh, no, I, I, as a neutral observer and somebody who doesn't have skin in the game this year, unfortunately. Uh, and I know that I'm talking to a Tottenham fan. I know that certain Tottenham fans listen to this podcast. Um, but I do want Arsenal to win the league. I'll make no bones about it. <clears throat> Number of reasons that I'd like Arsenal to win the league. Firstly, I've, I've never really, I've never had a problem with Arsenal. There are actually quite, I won't go too deeply into it, but there are a few reasons why I've actually always had quite big respect for Arsenal. Not least that, in 1989, uh, just a couple of weeks after the um, Hillsborough disaster, Liverpool had the 
the greatest ever sort of title one match showdown with Arsenal Friday night at Anfield, the last game of the season. This is what the it must really annoy actually. The uh, well, it probably doesn't annoy because uh, just the height. I think too few people recognise that only what three years before it was rebadged as the Premier League and Sky Sports got hold of it and the sort of you know the the feel good propaganda took hold that the two teams going for the title played each other on the last game of the season. Um, you know, I know that 2012 was a big thing, you know, Aguero last minute of the season, but that was a comeback against a team that were narrowly avoiding relegation. They weren't playing each other. Um, and even though it was incredible, two goals in injury time or whatever, to actually have the title to go down to the last match of the season in which the two protagonists are playing against each other with a last-minute goal from Michael Thomas. I mean, it, do- it just doesn't get more dramatic than that. <clears throat> and because that came a few weeks after the Hillsborough disaster, um, clearly, even though Arsenal celebrated wildly and you know justifiably um, were delighted, and I think that was their first um, title in sort of 20-odd years. They won it in 1971, didn't they, when they won the double? Um, so, yeah, nearly, nearly 20 years. Um, uh, 18 years, I believe. Uh, my maths. Um, uh, there was, some, there are some really incredible stories from that night about how uh, the people of Liverpool who clearly, well, firstly at that time they were so used to winning titles, I think they could probably just you know accept it. But they do. They, I know I'm biased, but they have always had a you know history of you know applauding opponents off the pitch, and they stayed. They didn't just leave the stadium. They stayed behind and watched Arsenal pick up the title and. Uh, and then as Arsenal were kind of driving away, celebrating on their team bus, there were people standing in their doorways, not not Everton fans. These are people with like, you know, wearing red shirts and stuff, standing in their doorways watching the um uh coach go past and, and, and applauding. <clears throat> and I don't know whether it's directly as a result of that, but I've always found as somebody who's, you know, spent the last twenty five years not missing many uh, home matches at Anfield. Arsenal fans have always been among the the best and most respectful observers of um, marking the Hillsborough uh, tragedy and respecting it. I remember being at a game, a brilliant four-all draw in 2009 when Andre Shavin scored four goals for Arsenal. And even though that night, because Liverpool were right in the title race at the time, and even though that night probably cost Liverpool... They, they they fell four points short, and the two points they dropped that night really hit them hard. Um, but I, I, one of my biggest memories of it, it was the 20-year anniversary of the, the disaster, and the Arsenal fans had brought a big banner saying justice for the 96, because at the time, 96 had died, subsequently been 97, unfortunately, in the last couple of years. And so I've always kind of had... Respect for Arsenal in, in, in that because I, I'm, that sort of thing should be a given, but unfortunately we're living in a in a world in which there's some real gutter individuals out there who think it's fine to sing songs always the victim. Most of these people are idiots who sing stuff like that. By the way, or were born, um, you know, sit, probably from about sort of 1995 onwards, um, so weren't even fucking alive when the uh, disaster happened, and they're just singing. Uh, really offensive and um, sort of hurtful and out of order stuff about things that they don't even fucking understand just to get a bit of attention. Um, so, you know, they are sort of impotent little mouth-breathing bedroom masturbators. But, you know, um, um, uh, but even so, it is unfortunately common uh, to hear, you know, disgraceful songs like that. 
I have to say it, particularly when the Manchester teams are involved. Um, but Arsenal have never, I've never heard any of that. And I'm sure that someone out there will come up with a contrary opinion and say, oh, well, I heard, you know, but it would, even if they did, there's always going to be, and if there's 60,000 people in a football ground, there's always going to be, a, you know, a dickhead somewhere and you can find them and you can film them and you can use that. To, but on the whole, I think they've always been very good in that respect. So that's my personal reason for kind of having a respect for Arsenal. But on a more sort of modern football-related reason, I think it would be good for the Premier League. I think that their success has been built over a kind of a steady building project from their manager, that that it isn't based entirely on spending, that their revenue is generated through sort of realistic means rather than the theft of state assets and sort of... unsustainable and unmatchable spending from a limitless pot of money. Um, and But despite all of that, I, I'm i not going to use the term that they've blown it because even if they don't win the league, which I'm, unfortunately I don't think they're going to now, um, you can't say that they've blown it because what they are unfortunately in the process of finding out, and again, I'm going to say again, I really hope I'm wrong and I hope that you know by the time we record next week, the two teams will have played each other in a crucial encounter next Wednesday night. And, you know, that is an exciting prospect. And I hope Arsenal can go up to main road, as I still belligerently call it, and uh, win. But I I don't think they're going to. And what they are discovering, which is a significant difference from the last time they were in a a title, you know, a successful title race in, in 2004, 19 years ago, is that the stakes, the standards required to win the league now are so ludicrously high it's never been harder to win the title because you have to take on Manchester City and Manchester City are a a point accumulating machine they can win game after game when it was the you know Arsenal against uh, Manchester United for that that sort of you know six seven year spell when it was and then Chelsea came along and sort of got their money and joined the party um there was a realistic prospect that, that a team would lose five or six, even seven games and, and, and still win the league. Or, you know, as I've said on here before, uh, the supposedly uh, incredible treble season of 1999, um, Manchester United won the league uh, that season, I think on 78 or 79 points. You know, that would uh, barely get you in the top four in some of the reasons. It certainly wouldn't get you in the top two. And, um, Think about what Liverpool have had to do in recent years just to get close to winning the league. You know, they won the league on 99 points. They lost the title by one point with 97 points. Last season, they got 92 points again and failed to win the league by a point. So it's it's rare for teams, even league winning teams, to get over 90 points. Man City now may, have made that an, an absolute sort of necessity, an undoubted necessity. You have to go well over 90 points Um to win the league, they're set to kind of do it again. I mean, they've lost four matches this season. That's more than they would normally lose in an entire season. So they, I suppose, in that that represented Arsenal's um, um, opportunity to capitalise. And Arsenal, whatever whatever happens, they have been unbelievable. The the consistency and the sort of togetherness and the ruthlessness and the level of performance and the, yeah, everything about it has been absolutely incredible. And I've, I've compared it, I think on this podcast before to Liverpool's kind of, in terms of its unexpected nature, Liverpool's attempt at winning the title in 2014 sort of came out of nowhere and had this seemingly unstoppable momentum. But I've, as I've said again, qualify it, 
on uh, many times I feel that Arsenal's has been done in a much sort of you know more methodical and thoughtful and pre-planned way whereas Liverpool's in 2014 kind of came out of nowhere they hit this momentum and then you know but just as I've always said it is it is incorrect despite the drama of Steven Gerrard slipping on his ass and and presenting Denver Bar with the ball in in 2014 and that that giving particularly the, the sort of the haters the opportunity to to see a moment and oh look they blew it and then a few days later because they then had needed to worry about goal difference they had, they went to Crystal Palace went three nil up rather than just you know taking the win and moving on to the next game they had this mad idea that they could. Um, I think chased down the seven or eight goals that they needed to get the goal difference level with Man City, kept chasing the game and as a result left themselves open, drew three all. And that's seen by a lot of people as evidence of capitulation. But there was a real, there was a genuine reason as to why they were um, sort of tactically going at it in that way. Now, I don't see Arsenal doing anything like that because I'm not sure it will I'm not just not sure the nature of it is going to work out that way. But even if they lost every game for the rest of the season, which they won't, but even if they did, they have not bottled it. They've not capitulated. They just are where they are. They At the beginning of this season, if you'd said to any Arsenal fan that they'll finish in the top four, they would have been absolutely delighted, particularly the way they, they genuinely did blow it at the end of last season. They had it all in their hands and they fucked it right up. They they did bottle it. This wouldn't constitute a bottling. And I, and I think they will push City all the way. I just fear that they're going to land a little bit um, short, unfortunately, for them. But but it, what it what it has done, particularly with the prevalence of Newcastle as well, it's pretty likely, and I do think this is good for the health of the Premier League, that of the four teams that qualified for the Champions League this season and represented um, the Premier League in, 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 in that competition, um, three of the four are highly likely not to qualify this year. I don't think Tottenham... Well, Chelsea mathematically can't. Liverpool are highly unlikely to. And I'm not sure I'm convinced Tottenham will make it back in. So uh, that other lot from Manchester, Newcastle and Arsenal themselves, you know, that's three teams that certainly in the, well, Arsenal after 20 odd years of relentlessly qualifying every year have had a quite a sustained spell out and Newcastle haven't been in there since about 2003. So that probably is demonstration of a of the healthy league. Um, but the relegation is unbelievable. I, I genuinely have never known anything like it. And it's what's good is it means that normally you get to this stage of the season and there are a lot of fixtures that you look at and go, oh, yeah, okay, uh, I don't know, like Palace against Leeds. Yeah, they're, they're just, you know, the players have done, it. you know, they just want to go on holiday. They've got nothing to play for. But every single match has got something on it. Even there are only about three teams in the entire league that are probably going to kind of meander towards the end of the season. No threat of relegation, but unlikely to get any higher. But because they will always be playing against someone who's got significant things still to play for, then it bodes for a really exciting end to the season. And Aston Villa, Aston Villa, who, who were kind of going nowhere and, Obviously, they had a disappointing spell under under Steven Gerrard earlier in the season and then brought in Unai Emery. Really good start. Went then a little bit flat for a while. And now I've put this run together where they're now in genuine contention of getting in the top four. Um, it's pretty unbelievable. And I, I think there's a, there's a very good chance that an established Premier League team are going to go down this season. I mean, I don't want it to happen, but 
Leicester City, who only won the league, what, seven years ago, are currently one from bottom and their form has absolutely tanked. So, you know, there's a strong chance that they'll go. But even if they don't, West Ham are massively in the shit. Leeds United are massively in the shit. And, of course, there's Everton. And it is an interesting observation that Everton and Chelsea have both are both having, you know, two of the sort of worst seasons in their club's recent um recent memory and if only if only and I've really racked my brains if only there were a common denominator that both teams you know a variable that had afflicted both of those clubs at some point this season that you could maybe you know um tie together some sort of narrative and think oh maybe that's the cause I can't think of anything I mean can you (laughs) I just can't um oh because Chelsea have just lost, I think, four games in a row for the first time since 1993. They've now got absolutely nothing to play for. And they are in the bottom half of the table. And, you know, even if they have a good end to the season, they're probably at best going to finish maybe eighth or ninth. And Everton, even if they do stay up, are going to... Who was... Who was Everton manager for the f- f- first half of the season? I can't... Hold on, who's Chelsea manager now? Oh, isn't that guy? Oh, I know. It's that guy who used to play for England and Chelsea. Yeah, the Tory, the Tory guy. Yeah, yeah, the, ma- the massive Tory, the massive, massive Tory supporting twat. Oh, what's his name? Oh, La- La- Lampard. That's it. Yeah, Lampard. Sorry, I totally, totally forgot the name of the Tory supporting twat, uh, Lampard. Um, yeah, fac- yeah. So his managerial career is going from strength to strength, and I. There's not many things where there's not there are not many occasions where I'll um I'll sort of say needless to say I had the last laugh partridge style, but I've mugged him off on here so many times uh, for his uh, <laughs> what I regard as limited skill set, and uh, it's just incredible that sort of everything he touches seems to turn to shit. But it doesn't stop him having this impenetrable self belief and the, the audacity of him, you know, sort of turning. He he's got this incredible skill of distancing himself from any any problem that he has contributed to causing. So he will always, almost entirely when his team have lost, he'll refer to them as they rather <laughs> than we. It's never we. They're never in it together when they're losing. It's we when we've won, but it's they. And then he'll use all this harsh terminology about I'm not letting anyone off the hook. We've had some, you know, that wasn't good enough for this great football club, blah, 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 blah. Platitude, platitude, platitude. But it's just bollocks. And I think he's becoming he is becoming a, a, a joke of a character um, more and more with each um, uh, passing match. And to, even by taking that job, because... You know, we had a, an entire episode, didn't we? As you, I think, reminded me just before we started recording, back just after the January transfer window shut, about Chelsea's record-breaking spending splurge from last summer and in January. The fact that in January they spent, they alone spent more than the four other top European leagues, excluding the Premier League, leagues combined. So the Italian, the German, the French and the Spanish leagues, you took the entire spending of those leagues, all of them have got 20 clubs, combine that, add them all (laughs) together, and Chelsea still spent more. And yet they can't score a goal. They gave a job 
to a manager who they kind of persuaded to leave Brighton. He was a highly respected manager who was, a, you know, a, a proven coach, a proper coach, like who can improve players and work on systems. And, and they said, we, this is a fundamental change of policy as, as a club. We're now not looking for these sort of short-termism hire and fire that characterised the Abramovich era. We're going to, we've persuaded this guy. He didn't want to leave Brighton, but we've reassured his fears that we're not that club that are just going to make you crash and burn anymore. You know, even if you have a bad run of form, we're going to stick with you because we believe in the, in the process, you know, the Arteta line, trust the process. Uh, when they were struggling last season, he used to get mocked for saying trust the process, but you know, who's laughing now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know they're going to win the to league. Say, I'm sure nearly. Arteta says that as well. Well, indeed. Um, but, but yeah, but but and then and then of course, but what happens? I think in Chelsea, unfortunately, well, so unfortunately, you know, it's up to them how they want things to go. But I think that the 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 mindset of the fans and also the mindset of the modern day fan has altered. To some, I think if you'd taken a Chelsea fan in 2004. Because they'd had they'd had about ten years up to two thousand and four, sorry three, when they got their money, so the three four season, where they'd won a couple of FA Cups, they won a Cup Winners Cup, and they'd stopped in and around that top area of the Premier League, challenging, and they were, I think, they were a lot more kind of relatable and likable to the sort of neutral in those days, because they're probably the most universally disliked club now. If you you know, just because I think people see the vulgarity of the. The, the the sort of spending and the brashness and you know the, the the oil money and all that sort of stuff and you know all the yeah the, the things associated with Abramovich and uh, but I think if you'd taken the, an average Chelsea fan from around that time and said yeah you're going to have to take you have going to have to take a backward step to go forwards they would have probably accepted it because they were used to sort of you know having fallow periods but what the Graham Potter scenario showed is that even if you have an owner. And by the way, this owner clearly hasn't got a fucking Scooby-Doo what he's doing. Absolute clown of a man. Tard Bowley. Um, but even if you have an owner who's determined to implement a change in direction and, and, in, and approach and culture, um, the fans are now so entitled and so expectant that the, the atmosphere will become so fucking unbearably toxic and the manager will start getting, you know, sort of death threats and and all sorts of horrible stuff, not just on social media, but actually in the street, family will get abused, all that sort of stuff in the stadium itself, that it's just un- unbearable. It becomes unbearable on a, on a sort of human level. And you almost have to do the kind thing and put them out of their misery. <laughs> but the idea that then Frank walks back in, having failed first time round at Chelsea, despite having, you know, having a, all the, you know, the, the, the toys to play with and the money to, 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 uh, you know, have his little playground and buy all his favourite players. And that was going really badly. And then he got binned off. And obviously Tommy Tuchel came in and won the bloody Champions League with the same uh, squad and team that Lampard had. So if that isn't evidence that Lampard was a, a, a compl- like completely out of his depth and underachieving in the first place, I don't know what is. But the fact he's gone back so humiliatingly, having kind of, yes, he kept Everton up, but then was having another sort of insipid season. Um and he's sort of been persuaded to go back in and takes himself so seriously that he, without a flicker of irony, self-doubt or shame, just expects people to believe that, oh, I'm this, I'm this sort of straight-talking, tough manager who just loves the club and I'm going gonna, 
I, I, my standards are so high that I won't accept anything other than the best at this club. And at the moment, what we're producing is not good enough. Blah, blah, blah. You know, blah, 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 blah. Loaded, <laughs> absolute sh- just shit. Like, anyone of any intelligence... If I was a Chelsea fan, I would just be, like, insulted by... The, it is an insult to anyone with half a brain's intelligence, the nonsense that he comes out with and that the club sort of come out with. And that, yeah, he's... I mean, how any club can spend just, like, in almost immoral amounts of money and still not be able to score a fucking goal is just outrageous. They've got a striker that they spent about 100 million quid on only a couple of years ago who they, they're still having to contribute towards his wages and he's out on loan in the Milan, now in the Champions League semi-final, um, who they don't seem to want back. And I don't know what's going to happen. I'm assuming he's still got a couple of years to go on his contract. He's probably on about 300 grand a week. I mean, they're not going to have Champions League revenue next season to help sort of fiddle the books. The rules have actually been changed since the... um, Again, go back to my my groundbreaking and superbly researched episode that I did purely about Chelsea's transfer policy. But I can't remember what the... um, There's some dodgy financial accounting term that they were doing to do with kind of offsetting against long-term contracts and, and not having to, for bottom line purposes, report the whole expenditure of a transfer now in order to enable them to carry on spending and spending and spending. But that they're not allowed to do that anymore because that as a policy, even though they've benefited from it and, that, and it won't be retracted, they can't do that. No club is now allowed to do that. Um, so it's really difficult to see what they're going to do because there is this thing called financial fair play. They are not immune from it. And uh, I don't, you know, oh, it's just fascinating. It is, but it is, it is, uh, it is I'm, I'm sorry, Chelsea fans, but it is quite... Uh, funny to watch um so yeah so i I think we're in for a um a fascinating few weeks i think there's a good chance that a big fish could end up getting drained from the premier league it's worth also just considering and maybe something we can talk about in a in in an upcoming episode about the teams that are likely to come up into the premier league at the championship because you've got a you've got really two stories going on there you've got the you know i always bang on i've got this obsession with liking to see um geographical a bit of variation. <laughs> not just a geographical spread but i don't oh. like seeing the same teams that have just got relegated coming straight back up because they are disproportionately benefiting from the parachute money as they come down which gives them a comp- an unfair competitive advantage in the championship and then they just come back up so you then create this sort of mini drift league at the top of the championship but not quite good enough for the premier league where the same teams burnley norwich sheffield united etc just keep going up down up down up down Burnley are already up, only got relegated last season. Sheffield United are coming up. They only got relegated the season before. So cumulatively there, you've got like three seasons in the championship and they're back up. But in the playoff spots at the moment, you've got like Luton Town and Millwall. Um, And it is a bit of trivia that I'll end you on. If Luton Town were to get promoted. So the last season before the... Premier League uh, was re- they've rebadged it, you fool. Since they changed it from a mini metro to a row um, to a uh, to a what was it? No, a Rover Metro to a mini metro. I can't, I can't remember <laughs> yeah. or the other way. Yeah, ro- mini metro to Rover Metro. Um, th- so the last season was ninety one ninety two, right? Leeds United won the title famously, um, and three teams got relegated, missing out on um, being 
um, founding members of the rebadged Mini Metro League. Um, one of them was West Ham United, who then I think came up the following season, won the league. So 92, 93, won the, whatever they called it, it was the first division, I think they called it then, um, what is now the championship. But the two other clubs that went down that season, and this is quite interesting because it just wouldn't happen now, have never played in the Premier League. Notts County, one of the oldest football clubs in the world, who are currently second place in the National League Premier. So they've gone all the way down to actually out of the, what they would have called the professional tiers uh, in the past, but they are still very much a professional club. Um, and the other one's Luton Town. And that they themselves went all the way down, spent best part of a decade, I think, in the National League and have come back up. And they are currently, I think, third in the uh, championship. Very, very impressively and well-run club. So... A club like Millwall or Luton being in the Premier League would, would put a cat amongst the pigeons, not least because they have significant hooligan elements in their fan base, um, particularly Millwall. So I'm sure everyone would... I mean, because what the Premier League really needs is another London club. This is only about <laughs> 17 of them uh, at the moment anyway. So, yeah, good for the geographic spread. Anyway, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm shit-chatting. Uh, I mean, shit-chatting. Um, another, another, another partridge reference there. So... Anything else to add, Matthew? No. Good. today. Right. See you next week. We will be doing one next week, and we'll do one for the next million weeks in a row. Are you telling me or the audience? I'm telling every <laughs> fucker that will listen, which by, by our stats isn't many. Um, so uh, on that note, uh, it's time to say have a lovely week. Goodbye from me and goodbye from Matthew. Say goodbye, Matthew. Goodbye, Matthew. Thank you.